Let's give a hand to all of this group this morning for a great job with these old hymns of the faith. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Love those songs. I grew up singing those songs. I could hear some of you getting back into the harmonies of those songs. Um, when we were singing them growing up, of course, we couldn't look at the lyric on the screen, right? We had the old hymnal in the hand, but uh, what a blessing. And I love the word you used, Jeff. You said the legacy of those songs of worship. So thank you guys for being here today. It's great to see you. It's great to see us together. Um, in all honesty, I would love to do it this way every single week. I'd rather do it this way. Um, I can give it all in one shot and don't have to worry about refilling the tank at all or drinking another coffee or finding a monster in the fridge or whatever it is. Some of you know what that means. Some of you don't. But uh, obviously, if we did it this way every week, we wouldn't have the room to continue to grow and reach people. And we are so blessed. We kind of have a running thing going, Cindy and I, every week at the kiosk. We want to see how many families from California have come to visit. And that's great. I do have one thing I'm saying over and over again, are you the crazy Californian or do you love Jesus and are you conservative? And if you're the first kind, there are other churches, and if you're the second kind, you're welcome at Grace. Let me, let me say to you guys out there watching, because everybody's universal testimony has essentially been we've been watching for months. We've been watching you. That can be a little creepy if it's outside of the context of a worship service, but thank you for tuning in. I really do appreciate you out there, wherever you may be, you're watching, you're considering moving to Knoxville. It is a great area. It really is, and uh, you're considering grace. Well, look no further. Uh, this can be your home, and whether you love Jesus and know him already or you're on the path of discovery and journey, we welcome you here. In fact, this is such a great place to move I knew a beautiful young lady and her husband, and they were blessed with a little red-headed girl named Miss Lucy, and they thought this was such a great place to move. This past week, that's exactly what they did. Would you welcome Heather and Parker Levesey to Grace? Huge thank you to all of you who helped them move this week. We had a great group of their friends in North Carolina and a great group of Grace friends here and a bunch of football players. It was awesome. I was just able to jump up in the truck and kind of direct and steer, and it was great. And uh, Lucy's in the nursery enjoying, and you pray for Heather and Parker as they uh, prayerfully look for a good church, okay? All right, so, <laughs> better not. So, uh, no, they're doing what the Lord leads them to do, and thank God for, for um, family. Family's a blessing. And this is the first time in, ah, Wasn't gonna get emotional. This is the first time in uh, over seven years we've had all of our kiddos in one place, all together. Don't ever take your family for granted. They're a blessing. Okay, enough of that pansy stuff. First John chapter two. First John chapter two. This series is called Blessed Assurance. We're talking about light, love, and life with Christ. We're learning this verse together. First John two, three. Say it with me. You ready? Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Good. Let's do it again. Some blanks in there. Ready? Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Good. Now, you got to remember that on Friday night as much as Sunday morning, all right? Keep his commandments. Do what the Lord calls you to do. Last week, we said you're an overcomer. How do you know you're an overcomer? Because you're forgiven for God's glory and you're good. You're an overcomer because you know the one true God. 
You've already won a victory over the wicked one, and you are strong. If you know Jesus, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Don't listen to the whispers of the enemy. Listen to the voice of God through the word of God. So John gave us that poem, that song of inspiration, and I've been using the song theme. In fact, next week I have another song. It's actually from the 50s. Some of you remember the group called The Platters, The Great Pretender. Anybody ever heard that song? Next week that'll be our theme, but today... The title is this, Looking for Love. And you don't put a G on that now, folks. It's looking, not looking, looking. Even you Californians, no G on looking, okay? You know, there were a group of first graders. They were touring a hospital, and they were all fascinated as they were shown around at the different areas of the hospital. And one of the little fellows in the group raised his hand as the tour was coming to a close, and he said, well, how come the people around here wash their hands so much? And the gal leading the tour gave a very wise answer. She said, sweetheart, they wash their hands for two reasons. First, they love health. They love health. And second, they hate germs. You know, this past year of hand washing and all manner of sanitation and whatnot, we've realized that we got to love health. And we got to hate germs. we got to hate viruses. we got to hate all that bad stuff. And do you realize in many areas of life, love and hate actually go hand in hand. In fact, Psalm 97.10 says it this way, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Romans 12.9, Paul said, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Abhor. That means even a step beyond hate. John's epistles reminded us to exercise love, the right kind of love. We're called to love one another. But there's a wrong kind of love. There is a love that God hates. Let me say that again. There's a love that God hates. I used to love Mylon. Anybody remember Mylon Lefevre? Mylon and the Broken Heart? Anybody? Okay, good. So four of us loved Mylon. That's great. Fantastic. He uh, had an album called Crack the Sky. I used to have a cassette tape. Explain that to your children later. And on my tape, I had that album, Crack the Sky. And when we'd work out, had a little workout area in our basement growing up, and where we, my uh, youth pastor and some of my buddies and I would work out, we would crank that song, Love God, Hate Sin. you got to love God, hate sin, refuse to lose, live to win. And there is a love that God hates. Well, what is it? Love of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's break it down. But first, where did I get the title for today's message? I've actually never seen the film. I know some of you have because you had already mentioned it to me, but it's a film called Urban Cowboy featuring John Travoltis from 1980, and the guy named Johnny Lee uh, made this song famous. He didn't write it, but he recorded it. And what's that song say? I was looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love. You know the next line? In too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. (laughs) No, I don't want to mess up the great hymns from earlier. But you know that song, right? I just gave you an earworm. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. Good. You got it. All right. We can all be heathens together. Now, that could be an apt description of what people are doing in our world right now. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. Looking for love at the bottom of a bottle. Looking for love in those pills. Looking for love in this thing or that thing. Even things that aren't necessarily bad. 
entertainment and fun and hobby. We can entertain ourselves to death. Well, the same thing was happening in John's day. In fact, I'm going to go back further than that. I'm going to tell you that today, based on what we're going to read in this text, looking for love in all the wrong places started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word, and we'll see how that unfolds here in just a bit. Let's just do these three verses together. 1 John 2, 15. John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now he's going to explain what he meant by love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Y'all have heard that before, I bet. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Those things, well, they're, they're not of the Father. Those things are of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great little section of Scripture. It's very direct, very simple, but it's a whole lot harder to live it, to apply it to our lives. So I pray right now that you'd remove every distraction from our hearts and our minds. Let us not think about what's coming next. Let's think about your word right here, right now, and how it speaks to us and how it changes us. And Lord, wherever we are in this life, whether we've walked with Jesus many years or we're just on the front end of a journey of discovery, I pray that you would speak clearly, that we would listen well, and that we would apply your truth for our good, but most of all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said amen, amen. All right, three characteristics of ungodly love that we're going to avoid, but before we get there, we got to look at this setup. Now, I gleaned some of this from Warren Wearsby. He's got a great uh, commentary, the Bible exposition commentary, and then some of it I've added of my own. But we've got to ask, what does John mean by the world? What do you mean when you say, do not love the world? After all, that same Greek word, the word there, by the way, is kosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, if I alliterate from the Greek. K-O-S-M-O-S, you've heard the kosmos. That's the word used, that's where we get it from Greek. But it's not cosmos, it's cosmos in Greek. And after this, this word is used in other places, it's used in John's gospel. In fact, he said it this way, for God so loved the world. But now he tells us don't love the world. What, what do you mean? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But are we not supposed to be like God and love the world then in that way? Well, the Greek New Testament has world in at least three different meanings. There are three ways that we use this concept. First, sometimes world means the physical world. Let me give you an example, Acts 17, 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. World, physical world. Secondly, there's the idea of the human world. So when you read John 3.16, the reason a lot of preachers say take the word world out and put your name there is because it's a reference to the human world, humanity. For God so loved the world. Bobby, Cindy, Lucy. God loved the world. That includes you. And then sometimes those things appear together. It says Jesus was in the world and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. What? what, what? It means he was in the physical world. And all of physical creation knew who it was, including Satan and all of his evil cohorts. But the world, the mankind, people knew him not. So this warning, do not love the world, is not about the world of nature. You ought to love nature. I love nature. 
I absolutely love it. If, if you want to ask me, where can I feel closest to God? Two places. The pulpit, because I know God's called me here. And I feel close to God when I'm doing what God's called me to do and been prepped before to do this. I feel close to the Lord in this moment. But I feel very close to the Lord out there on the water, in the tree stand or the blind, crawling on my belly with a buddy on a hunt. I love the world. I don't think it should be that we don't appreciate the beauty and usefulness of the earth God has made. We should love the world. But also we love the human world, humanity, people, men and women and boys and girls. We ought to love the world in that way, to love people. So what does John mean in 1 John 2.15 here about world? I've got it on your outline. You ready? World in the third sense, not the physical world, not the human world, in the third sense it refers to the spiritual realm or system all around us that's opposed to God and the work of Christ on earth. Okay? So it's this realm, it's this system. It's both seen and unseen. We use the word world the same way in our daily conversation. Think about it. The TV announcer says, we bring you news from the world of sports. You, you know what that means. That means from the system, from the organized set of ideas and people and activities and purposes. Some of you work in the world of finance. We have the world of politics. Each has its own system. And behind the world of finance or sports or whatever it is, there's that invisible realm. Things that we don't see. Things that are happening. Wheels that are turning. We might see the big game but we don't see everything that happens behind it unless we're in that world. So the idea of world that John is saying, do not love the world, is the opposite of what is godly, holy, spiritual. Jesus said, Satan is the prince of this world. Now don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean this physical world. We're called to have dominion over the physical world. When it says that Satan is the prince of this world, he means of this system. That which is opposed to good and godly things, that's what Satan is prince of. The devil has an organization because, remember, he was an angel. He was one of the chief angels. And yet, wanting to put himself in the place of God, he took about a third of the angelic host and they fell. In pride, they were kicked out of God's presence and glory. And they became what we refer to now as demons. And so you have this unseen world and God said, don't, don't go into that playground. Stay out of that area. Warren Wiersbe said this, a Christian is a member of the human world, and he lives in the physical world, but he does not belong to the spiritual world that is Satan's system for opposing God. So what John's going to say to us today, guys, is if we love the world, the third kind of world, we're not loving God. In fact, you can't love the world and love God at the same time. In fact, James 4.4 4 strengthens that argument I'm going to make to you today. James 4.4 4 says, friendship with the world is hatred or enmity with God. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. So as Christians living in the world but not of the world, there are some things we've got to avoid. And you've heard that phrase, right? We're in the world, not of the world. That's what it means. We're in the physical world. We're not of that satanic spiritual world. We're separate from that. So what does it mean? What are the three things we've got to avoid? Well, John makes it real easy, right? He says, start by avoiding the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. For all that is in the world, he's going to explain in 16, the lust of the flesh. I bet y'all know points two and three. Don't fill them in. Just 
hang with me. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's not of the Father. That's of the world. Paul said something super important in Galatians 5.16. He said, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Epithumia, lust, epithumia. Let me try to explain it. Intense desire or craving that is off-center, outside of God's good intent and design. Flesh, sarks. It means a physical body, but it can also be the seed of sin and rebellion against God. So anything that we want to talk about with lust of the flesh is that which appeals to our fallen nature. It doesn't just mean our physical body. Often we think that. But anything that appeals to our fallen nature. And so the basic nature of unsaved, unregenerate people is to make us blind to spiritual truth. Flesh is the nature we receive at physical birth. Spirit is the nature we receive at our second birth. And when we trust Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. So what happens? Well, I've got this old sarks, this flesh, this physical me that's at war with the new me, the spiritual me. Have any of you ever felt like you were warring, that there was a battle? You know, you've got that good angel and that bad angel. you got Jesus and Satan kind of whispering back and forth. Back, go here, go, go there, do this, don't do that. So you've got this war that's going on. And you know, God has given us some desires. And not all of those things are necessarily bad. In fact, they're quite good. Let me tell you, the desire for hunger, it's a good thing. Thirst, weariness, even sexual desire in and of itself is not evil. There's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, sleeping, or intimacy with your spouse within bounds. But when the flesh controls them, they become sinful lusts. Let me explain. Hunger is not evil. Gluttony is a sin. Sorry. (laughs) Thirst is not evil. Drunkenness is a sin. Sleep is not evil. It's a gift of God. But laziness is shameful. Sex and intimacy is God's precious gift when enjoyed rightly between a husband and a wife, his wife, her husband, okay? It's right, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's a gift of God, but used outside of that, it becomes sexual immorality. So the desires are not bad, but what does Satan do with our desire? Twist it, perverts it, distorts it. I share a story with you I heard from Charles Lowry years ago. I know Brother Charles has been here before. He shared this story a bazillion times. I think every time I've heard him speak, I've heard it. But to me, it really speaks. It's hysterical. I heard him in a Johnny Hunt conference for men one time. And I'll modify it just a little bit, make it my own slightly. But uh, it's like a a bug being drawn to a light. Now, where I grew up, we were in the country, we had a bug zapper. Anybody have a bug zapper? kind of purplish glow, it's got a little buzz to it. And then what happens when the, when the mosquito, hopefully the mosquito or whatever it is, goes into it? What's it do? Zap, 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 right? I love that sound. That's a beautiful sound. That's one less bite on my baby white skin. Okay, so I, I like that bug zapper sound. Um, so why do they do that? Well, number one, they don't know they're about to get zapped. They wouldn't do it if they were smart enough to know they're about to get zapped. What happens? They see the light and they go, ooh. It's just like some of you young men with a pretty girl. Hello? Oh, like y'all ain't never been zapped. And you see her and you just, right? You can't think straight. Some of y'all are like, no, 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 that's not my problem. I got a bug light for a lot of y'all. It's red, it's neon, it's round, it says hot now. 
Hey. Am I right? The sign zone, baby. We got to stop. We just get a dozen, right? But if the bug knew that he was about to get zapped, or if you knew, and this is where Charles Lowry says, if you knew you ate that first bite of the Krispy Kreme donut and your hip went poof. <laughs> I ain't got too much to worry about on that one. And then you took another bite and the other side, poof, just like the nutty professor. You probably wouldn't be eating so many Krispy Kreme donuts, right? But it tastes so good. If you just started popping out all over, if your button just popped off and hit some dude in the forehead drinking his milk, you would say, I probably shouldn't eat so many Krispy Kreme donuts. See, lust of the flesh can, can mean a lot of things. Like a man talking to a lady in some deeper emotional conversation that's not his wife. Y'all, they're on a slippery slope. And before you know it, when they get deep, and I mean even on these iPads and computers and phones and all that, the deeper they get, the more they're going, <laughs> and the more they're about to get zapped. Well, how do you know? Because I've been counseling them over 20 years. <laughs> I'm just telling you. It does not start with thinking, oh, I'm going to be an ox led to slaughter here, as Proverbs would say. Oh, I'm going to be a bug led to the zapper. I'm going to be that dude heading back to the red golden glow of Krispy Kreme. See, John points out that our world system uses three devices to trap us. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Do you realize that those started with Satan in the Garden of Eden? Any good pastor will tell you, if you unpack this text, that this is nothing new under the sun. Any good expositor of the Bible will tell you, this started at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Watch. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she had this hungering lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, she had a lust of the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. Oh, you'll be like God. She had the pride of life. These things originated with Satan in the garden. That's Genesis 3, 6. So you know how the world operates. It appeals to the normal appetites and tempts us to satisfy them in forbidden ways. When we wanted to catch um, shad, uh, their sort of small fish, to go striper fishing at Smith Mountain, we did one simple thing at Dad's boat dock. We turned on the lights. Later we got fancy and we had other kinds of lights, but we just turned on the lights. And the shad, are, the bugs are attracted to the lights, and the, li and the bugs will get down on the water surface, and the shad are attracted to the bugs... We just do it like that, and then here they come. When I'm turkey hunting, if I'm in the right setup, I put my decoys out. I put a young bird, a Jake, he's a teenage boy, and I put a girl. And what happens when there's a teenage boy hitting on a girl, a hen? The big boy, the mature boy goes, oh, not that. <laughs> and he goes to get his girl. And then I shoot his head off and eat him. It's a beautiful thing. But in our world, we are surrounded by all sorts of allurement and appeal to our fleshly nature because as Matthew 26, 41 says, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And we get involved in works of the flesh, Galatians 5 says. And the works of the flesh are adultery and fornication and uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresy. See, things like ambition are not bad, but selfish ambition is bad. 
He goes on to say there's envy and murder and drunkenness and revelry and the like. And I tell you beforehand, as I told you in the past, when you practice such things, mean habitually over and over, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, Pastor, you've told us nothing bad can keep us out of heaven because it's not what we do bad that gets us out and it's not what we do good that gets us in. You're right. But what the Bible says is if you live habitually in these ways, according to the lust of your flesh, then you are showing on the outside that you have a rotten root or no root on the inside. So it's a demonstration. It's just a revealer of the real heart. It's important that every believer remembers what God says about the old nature of the flesh. God says everything about it is negative. In the flesh, there's no good thing, Romans 7, 18. The flesh profits nothing, John 6, 63. A Christian puts no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3, 3. A Christian makes no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14. And all those problems go back to the beginning of humanity. Eve saw that that tree was good for food. The fruit wasn't rotten, but she had a misplaced desire because God said, don't do that. And Satan brought that same temptation to the Lord. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says he was hungry because he was not only fully God, he was and is fully man. He was hungry. And the tempter said, if you're the son of God, just command these stones to become bread. Anything wrong with eating bread? Nope. Sorry, Adkins folks, keto folks. Nothing wrong with eating bread. But... He said, hey, use your authority in a way that perverts it, twists it. See, that's what Satan wants all of us to do. The desire in and of itself may not be bad, but it has to be pointed correctly. It has to have its proper bounds. And the difference between the Lord Jesus and me is I can't make the stone become bread. But I am still tested. I am still tempted can I remind you of something that might help you today? The test is not sin. But I've got this feeling. It's okay. The test is not sin. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to it? Are you going to yield to it and give? Because that's when the desire switches. And it becomes action that can become sin. The same principle applies to gossip or intimacy or any other realm. As Christians living in the world and not of the world, we got to resist the lust of the flesh. Also, the lust of the eyes. Sometimes we forget our eyes have an appetite. Have you ever heard the phrase, feast your eyes on this? Have your kids ever gone to the restaurant and ordered so much food and you're like, hey, your eyes were bigger than your stomach, right? Bobby got uh, a bunch of wings last night, big ones big buffalo wings, and he decided to be brave and order the second level of heat. I could tell, where is he, by the way? Where are you, boy? <laughs> okay, good. Not a little girl beside him. Okay, good. Thank you, Chase. Just making sure. I could tell within the first bite there was regret in his eyes, and the sweat beaded up on his forehead, and I said, you are going to eat them all. He did. He had no problem. In fact, and then eating part of his sister's sandwich and her fries because he's going to be 15 in less than a week and um, he's an endless pit, okay? If y'all don't mind, we're going to pass the plate and take a special love offering to feed the children. <laughs> Just mine. Um, it's unbelievable. But he had this, this 
look, and, and he did finish, but we, we, our eyes can sometimes lead us to do things that maybe we ought not to do. The lust of the eyes refers to a sinful desire that leads to eventual corruption. It's used as a figure of speech to refer to that desire, like this, Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that whoever looks after a woman with lust, looks at her lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Does that mean I can't acknowledge that there is a beautiful woman? Well, sure, you can acknowledge that. It would not be that first glance or that look that gets you in trouble, is it, fellas? It's that second one, and third one, and fourth one, and so on and so forth. And the same for you ladies, of course. When Eve looked at the forbidden fruit, it was pleasing to the eye. Why would Satan put up a rotten, nasty piece of fruit in your face? You don't want to eat that. He makes the outside look as good and shiny as possible. What did David do with Bathsheba? Oh, David called Bathsheba and he slept with her. <clears throat> Wrong. That wasn't the first step. What was David doing? David was strolling on the balcony. And what's the Bible say in that story about David? He, oh, he looked. And that gal was bathing. Not unusual in that day. You would have extra things on your roof. And she was taking a bath. Now what should he have done? Oh, I shouldn't be looking at that. That's Uriah's wife. What did he do? He looked and he kept on looking. And that's what will kill us guys and gals. He kept on looking. And the Bible says he looked so hard he realized that she was very beautiful to behold. If she had been an ugly thing, he would have stuck with the ladies he already had. And eventually that led him to sin with her and kill her husband. Achan, Joshua chapter 7, who was a soldier, he brought defeat to Joshua's army. Scores of people were actually killed because of his sin. He, he looked and he lusted. God had warned Israel, don't you take from these spoils of Jericho. But Achan didn't obey. In fact, when he was caught, Achan said this, listen, I saw, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, the garment's not going to be ugly. I saw 200 shekels of silver. I saw a wedge of gold. I saw them and I coveted them and then I took them. What if he had just seen the garment, seen the silver, seen the gold? Would God have killed him? Would God have killed his family? Would God have given them a defeated AI? Would God have done? No. But he saw, then he kept seeing, then he lusted, he coveted, he took. This is the way it always works. Satan did this to Jesus. The Bible says when Jesus was out there in the wilderness that Satan took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world. <laughs> It was so goofy that Satan thought he could do anything with Christ since Christ created it all and already owned it all. But in Matthew 4, Satan said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Look, Jesus. Jesus already knew he owned it. Jesus already knew it was his. Have you ever had a problem with this? Let me give you an illustration you might not think of. I went by to the hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I used to go from Dobson to Winston-Salem, 45 miles. One hospital was 45 miles. The other hospital was 41 miles. And I ran by a, a, a dealership. I'm not even going to get into the name uh, of the vehicle or anything, but I had a pretty good truck at that time, but I saw another truck, a shinier truck, a newer truck. And then I drove by it, and then the next time I went to the hospital, guess what I did? I decided to go the same way. 
And the next time I went to the hospital, I purposely went the same way, and then I made a huge mistake. I got out of my truck, and I walked up to that truck. And I realized it was the demo of the owner, and it only had about 4,000 miles on it, and they had knocked the price down quite a bit, but it was still way too much money, and I, I didn't need it at all, but I liked it. It was shiny, and it was pretty. And so you know what I did? I went, uh. <laughs> And I've never had more trouble out of a vehicle in my entire life. I owned it one year, and it was in the shop more than I had it. And I finally got so frustrated after a year, I sold that truck. Do you think I made good profit on that transaction? I lost my backside. Because you know if you buy a vehicle that's pretty new and you sell it pretty quick, you're going to lose. Oh, it was a good-looking truck. It drove good. You know, a lot of people complimented me on that truck. They didn't know all the frustration I had with it. A lot of people said, man, that's a good-looking truck. That's nice. That's shiny. And for the first few weeks, I felt pretty good behind the wheel. But when you keep getting a loner and keep getting a loner and keep getting a loner, and they don't give you a nice, shiny truck as a loner. They give you a little smart car, goofy box thing to drive as a loner. It takes away your manhood. Sorry, smart car owners. But when you come out of a big old truck, and then you're, neat, neat, that's not good. And so all of that joy gets sucked away quickly. And some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. But he wasn't a truck. And she wasn't a truck. And you know what I'm talking about. And you get drawn away by the lust of your eyes. Gang, you know this. Why does the grass always look greener on the other side? That's right. It's built on septic lines. That's right. That's why it looks greener. Got to avoid the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and finally, and we'll be quick, the pride of life. Pride of life. The Greek word for pride here is used to describe a braggart trying to impress people with his uh, importance. The phrase pride of life has the idea of arrogance over circumstances that produces haughtiness or exaggeration, parading oneself. The Bible says these things are not of the Father because pride is in direct opposition and rebellion to God. What really irritates me in life, and particularly in ministry, is arrogance. Not confidence, cockiness. And there's a difference. I want to have confidence in Christ. I want to know that I know that I know. And you should as a Christian too. But we don't need a bunch of roosters strutting around here. Because arrogance is the thing that Jesus came up against so frequently. And arrogance is so unlike Christ. I had a professor at seminary, and I'm not going to use a name, and it's not Dr. Catanzaro by any stretch, okay? But he certainly knows, and I told him I was going to share this story. I had a professor that um, I worked with some behind the scenes. I got into doing some things in worship, got into doing some grading, and I worked with a particular professor, and behind the scenes, y'all, I'm just telling you, he was, he was an arrogant mess. He thought he was somebody. He was, had a high position at the school, had a lot of people looking up to him, and he really thought highly of himself. And I always had this check in my spirit, something's going to happen to that guy one day. I hope it doesn't, but something's going to happen. Do you know, sure enough, he went on a mission trip one time, and he didn't come back home to his wife. He ran off with his secretary. Of course, got let go of the seminary, as they should have. And now he's serving in the one, one of the most liberal places I've ever known. And I don't know where his walk is with the Lord if he's ever had one. The point being is you could see the sign behind the scenes. He looked okay on the front side, but when you got behind the curtain, you could see the signs. And you know, 
Eve saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. Many people like to pride themselves on certain things. They pride themselves on the fact they come from a certain family or they belong to a certain race. There's no place for that. Now, I am vehemently, adamantly opposed to critical theory or critical race theory. I think it's absolute garbage. And if you don't believe that, this probably isn't the church for you. But we're reading about it right now. We're studying about it as a staff. It's going to kill our education system if we allow this to continue. Let me tell you right now, anybody that thinks they're better than anybody else because of the color of their skin, because of their tribe, because of their family, anybody that puts themselves on a pedestal is not honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one family from Adam and Eve, from Noah, from his wife, from their sons and daughters-in-law. We are one family, red, yellow, black, white. We are precious in the sight of God, and don't you ever lift anybody up or more than put anybody down based on the color of their skin, their language, their creed, their socioeconomic status, because every human being you've ever seen and every human being you will ever see is made in the image of God. And when you hate on somebody because of the way they look or anything on the exterior, you are throwing a into the face of God saying, I hate your image. Don't do it, church. Everybody is welcome at Grace Baptist Church, okay? If you embrace that other garbage, you can go somewhere else. The flag we're going to wave here is the Christian flag, the flag of Christ, because whosoever will may come. You know, you know that's what Hitler did. Do you know if you go back in history and look, he made this appeal to the German people that one race was better than another? And that is a line that can never be crossed. It's the pride of life. It makes us feel superior. And I've met some Christians that feel like they're super-duper saints. They want to talk all spiritual and holy all the time. Just the way they talk, it just oozes this kind of holier-than-thou attitude. Satan took the Lord to the pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down. A great many people will witness it. You'll demonstrate to them your superiority. It's probably at feast time when a lot of people would have been in the city. But you know that, listen to this, Jesus Christ never performed a miracle to demonstrate his superiority. He never did a miracle to say, look at me, look at me, look how cool I am, look how powerful I am. He did it to point people to God, to lead people to the truth, to meet their needs, to draw them to faith. Worldly temptations are foolish for a couple reasons, y'all. First, they don't come from the Father. And second, we're all going to die. What do you mean that, we're all going to die? Well, what we're living for will come to an end. If it's not of God, it means nothing. Jim Elliott, the great missionary who was slain, said, He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Some of y'all need to give some stuff up. You need to give it up. You know what I'm saying right now to you, that God is speaking to your heart that this is a problem. This is lust of the flesh. This is lust of the eye. This is pride of life. Do not embrace the world's ways or goods. When you do, it squeezes out your love for God. When you live for getting your own way and getting everything you want and looking good compared to others, you're not living for God but the world. By the way, this is just a paraphrase from a Holman New Testament commentary on this text. You're so foolish for doing these things because it suffocates your relationship with God and in the end it's all going up in smoke anyway. 
But verse 17 says, but he who does the will of God abides forever. A person whose life is shaped by obedience to God will not be negatively affected by this world and its vain, fleeting desires. As God's people, we're willing to give up what we cannot keep, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, in order to gain what we cannot lose, eternal and abundant life with Christ. You say, but pastor, it looks so good. You just don't understand, man. She is fine. You just don't know how she makes me feel. Don't trust your feelings. Just reminding you. You're looking for love in all the wrong places, but it looks so good. Oh, he is fine. He is fine. He is fine. Now, this is not an example of a dude that's fine, okay? But look how happy he is. Y'all ready? Look how happy this guy is. Isn't he happy? He may not have a stitch of hair on top, but he's a happy dude. Are you sure? How sure are you? You don't look that happy to me. So, I know you've seen this. It's one of my favorites. Reminds me of my sweetheart. Look how pretty she is. She's a princess. Look at that. Isn't she pretty? Are you sure she's pretty? Are you positive she's pretty? Because you're going to do something crazy. And you're going to wake up looking over there at her. And that's the way she's going to look. Some of y'all just had a little PTSD moment, didn't you? <laughs> Man, looks so good at first. Were you looking at it upside down? Let me tell you what looks good and keeps looking good. For God so loved the world, that's you. That he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus. That whoever, no matter what you've done, believes in him, puts your faith in the finished work of Christ. Because he paid for your sin at Calvary. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later by the power of God he was raised to new life. And now he sits at the right hand of God ready to receive you. And if you believe in him, you will not perish. You will have everlasting life. So quit. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Stand with me and let's look to Jesus. I hope some of you will come today and you'll just lay it down. Whatever it is, you just lay it down. You say, well, what will they think of me? That's the pride of life, man. Let go. Let it go. Some of you need to come and pray for some other folks too because you know. You know they need to hear this. Some of you need to come and say, what's next? I'm ready to be a part of this church. I like it. I I believe God's calling me here. This is where we want to be. Can I talk to somebody about that? Yes, you can. Pastors will be off to the sides. We'll have counselors available at the end of the service as well. Some of you just need to come and pray for the state of things. You know, last week we were praying for the dear folks of Miami. They're in that... uh, just that process of d- demolition and, and getting that building material and rubble and just finding a little bit here and there. Let's continue to remember those families. I have a good dear friend uh, from seminary from over 20 years ago. He's a good buddy of mine named John Davis. 
John is dealing with something in his brain. They found something. He had some seizures. He had a biopsy on Friday. I know there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands, praying for Brother John. I'm going to add this church to the list because he's asked us to pray. Um, And I don't know what it could be, but pray for my friend John. And whatever else you want to bring to God today, if you want to give your life to Jesus, what better time is there than now? What better day is there than today? Whatever you want to do, the altar will be open for just a few minutes. So I'm going to invite you to come when I say amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Help us to look at things the right way. We're not going to be that moth drawn to the zapper. We're not going to be that ox led to slaughter. We're going to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray, amen.